When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. Jeff O'Neill here back with Rebecca Shinsky, who's back from little PTO, and uh, is ready to pontificate with clarity, expertise, <laughs> um, yes. and, and absolute certainty about the present and future of um, machine LLM-generated prose. So, Rebecca... Vanessa and I sit at the table. I'm going to clear out. I'm going to mute myself for the next 45 <laughs> Great, cool. minutes and just let I'm just you gonna, um, do your thing. Let me put my VR goggles on and yeah. I'm just going to monologue for a while about chat GPT and all of the all, all the things we obviously know about right. it, given it's what three week long existence <laughs> now. I'm totally ready. I have on my new progressive lenses I was telling you about. <laughs> so I definitely have extra clarity of some kind. Yes. Because what you want is people wearing um, newfangled bifocals to tell you about the future and all the hip things. That tech- I, you have them and I need them. Uh, that's, <laughs> Greetings, that's fellow are. kids. That's, that's Here right. we are. Speaking of alternate ways of reading things, did you see Liberty that she has been reading on her TV now? Did you see that no, on Instagram? No, that's amazing. That? So Liberty is one of, if not the only person I know that not just endures, but actually enjoys reading a full book on her laptop. Um Fine. You know, we've tried to say, hey, have you heard of an e-reader? Takes all kinds. No, it takes all kinds. What? But she went up a level of strangeness or down a level. I don't know. She, she, <laughs> she's shambling towards stranger, more idiosyncratic uses of, of books. But she's now streaming, basically using AirPlay, it sounds like, to put them on her new 52-inch TV and like sit on her couch and read the book on the TV. And I can't tell if this is like... One of those memes of we're all living in 2023 and this this woman living in 2075, or <laughs> it's do we have the right prescription on liberty? Do we need some? Maybe maybe she would read VR goggles. That's where I'm kind of coming oh. around to. Maybe she would actually use VR goggles, but yeah, I've never heard maybe. of this thing reading on your TV before. I haven't heard of that either. It re- it really gives me Ray Bradbury vibes of like just <laughs> right. throw that book up on the screens in your house, yes, and next thing right. you know, like the next version of it is like surround sound, but surround screen. Where like when you move from the kitchen to the bedroom, the book mm. pages just go with you. <laughs> right, your AR goggles are just sort of <laughs> casting the text on whatever flat surface it sees, and so you can just you just live inside read. the AR goggles. It's not like the book is coming from inside the house. The book just is the house. <laughs> there you go. You could probably get a six-figure deal for that. That right now, <laughs> the book is the house. Done. Um, anyway, we've got some follow-up to do, some new stories to do, uh, but we're going to take a quick break first and make way for a sponsor, and then we'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. 
haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet, we dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator, but her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the resulting wraiths loose in the city to kill. Now, the second book in the series, Hearts That Cut, will be on sale June 18th, 2024. This is a must read for all Greek mythology and fantasy fans. This is dripping with atmosphere, edged with danger. Threads That Bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery, faded romance, and modern myth. You won't be able to put this one down. And that comes from Alexandra Bracken, New York Times bestselling author of Lore. So make sure to pick up Threads That Bind by Kitsa Hatsapolu. And thanks again to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Uh, should we do internal shout out things? So uh, you've also written for um, Book Riot's mm-hmm. news subscription newsletter called The Deep Dive. I, I don't want to give it away because it's sort of the fun, but Rebecca writes about how much and how one might feel about how much they read. And longtime listeners of this show may intuit the way that goes, or you may not. I'd say it's, I wouldn't say it's like a a contrarian take, but for people who work in books, um, I'm not sure we have the rah-rah books are magic 
um, we don't have gear saying books are magic. Let's just put it that way. Is that fair to say, Rebecca? Is, I that, think, is that a good shorthand for? Yeah, I think that's fair. I do think longtime listeners of the show will probably know where I'm going there. Yeah. And as an additional hint, like the newsletter was originally slated to drop in January at the beginning of a new year when mm-hmm. people, you know, set particular kinds of goals. And that's that's what I was really thinking about. But it did kind of surprise me as I write as I wrote it, you know, like that's one of the fun things about having space to do something yes. that's 1500 to 3000 words is you get to find out along the way what you think about it and where it's going. <laughs> so I had a fun time discovering that. And I, I do know listeners of the show will have been especially interested in your long take yeah. on the biggest book of last year of the last several years. Two and years? How it's, yeah. A head scratcher in a lot of ways, but maybe not in the ways that the media has already acknowledged or even that we've talked about. Like uh, you and I have spent substantial time talking about that thing together. Mm -hmm. And there were some surprising things in your take about it to me as well. Yeah. And I think the thing you just said is fun to do. And I even framed my piece this way of like, I'm going to use this to think through this feeling I haven't tried to figure out. And I think mm-hmm. I said on last week's show, Rebecca's trying to not spoil it, but I think I already spoiled it last week that oh, okay. I don't remember the exact title of it, but it's something to the long of like the Colleen Hoover phenomenon is the weirdest or most mysterious bookish phenomenon of my reading life. And f- and I've always I've felt that way. Like it just felt different. And I use a lot of the things you've heard us talk about over time, but like the signal events and the reading events of my adult reading life, and especially when we've been doing the show of like, you know, your Marie Kondos, your Harry Potters, your Hunger Games, your, I'm trying to, where the Crawdad sings, your Gone Girls. And they're all weird. By definition, they're weird because otherwise they would just be another book that comes out. But this one is differently it's strangely strange. It's differently different is kind of what I have been feeling. And I try to walk through that. Um, and I, I don't actually spend that much time talking about the content of the book, frankly. There's a little bit mm-hmm. or, or the quality or my opinion of it. It's not about that at all. Um, so go check it out. I think I, I pumped out 2,500 words. My first draft was like 3,500. I was like, that's too much, Jeff, even for you. <laughs> um, but it was a fun exploration. And uh, go check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes. There's a free and a paid tier like happens with these newsletters. I actually don't know myself if both of ours are in one or the other, but you can get some and then if you want the rest you have to you have to pony up as these things go. So go check that out. Uh some other follow up. Um Vanessa and I were trying to find something to be excited about when it comes to applications of chat GPT mm. in the world of books and reading. And we really couldn't come up with one on ourselves. We're like I don't I don't think Right now, this is going to produce anything interesting for me. If anything, it's going to gum up the work with a bunch of middling to, to lower quartile submissions and make gatekeeping even more important, but also less inclusive because it's just going to take more time. to. to there's going to be so much more chaff. The chaff to wheat ratio is going to be strange for a little while, even worse than it normally is. So I asked listeners if they had use cases, the things they were excited about. Um, I think from a, for a reader like me, the answer is still no, but I thought I would mention one. One is someone who works in the te- tech and business side of books. Mm. And I think their, their take was there's a lot of writing that I have to do and we have to do in the process side of like how to do this thing or summarize or other kinds of stuff um, that they'll find uses for. And I guess that's more just general knowledge worker use cases, which I can mm-hmm. understand. But from a reader's point of view, will that lead to more better books? 
I don't really see it. Maybe publishing will be faster and more efficient, and the downstream effect of that would be a leaner, meaner, more agile, whatever, a, a more efficient producer of the crap I want to read. Okay, I'm sure that makes your job easier. I'm skeptical if that's going to make my reading life better. Um, I had one person write in to say, I think you're right about fiction, at least for the time being. You know, who knows how these things are going to evolve. Yeah. But maybe on the nonfiction side, there might be something, right? Because nonfiction, a lot of nonfiction is looking at primary and secondary sources and then doing stuff with them to turning them into a different kind of container, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. I can see that, maybe. Um, certainly not on the memoir autobiography side, because you have, you have to do enough inputs to like tell your life story. I don't know that it would be time efficient, but... I don't know if you're, say, wanting to write a a new history or a new book about the Library of Alexandria just to pick something in our field. Maybe you could get big chunks of paragraphs or shortcut the research or combing through stuff. I don't know. I think think that's interesting. Um, I can imagine people doing a lot of the kind of schlocky stuff that happens on Amazon in the form of self-pub books right now. Mm-hmm. for everything, or maybe there's just more of them. And so, I don't know if you listen to the show, but I, the more I thought about it, the, the point that Vanessa and I came to where really it's just going to be more mediocre, there's going to be more mediocre stuff out there. And that just makes things harder in general. And I think all those places where there can be more mediocre, where volume, where taking a quote-unquote shelf space is a function and can get you some marginal gains, it will happen there. But I don't tend to think that's going to happen in, to plug the Patreon episode we're doing, I don't think it's going to be churning out um, the new Rebecca Mackay book. It's just not not anytime soon. It can generate, but it can't create. And that's that's pretty well. So anything that's summarization, repackaging, um, rephrasing, probably it can be really helpful in that. But on the bleeding edge of new, it just can't do that. It can't report news. You know, it can't do new analysis and opinion of stuff because it needs a huge data sh- set of shit that's already out there. Mm-hmm. So by by its definition, the the realm of the new is not its purview. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I didn't get to listen to you and Vanessa talk yeah. about it, but to see like how, as you say, there will be more mediocre stuff out there, but like how far out there does it get? You know, like how much does it will it succeed in permeating like what mainstream readers in this conversation have access to or have to wade through um the the, like thing that i think we're seeing happen right now is it's still so new we really don't know much about it and everyone wants to know more than we do so there can be like policies and plans and procedures built around it and all sorts of like structure Folks are trying to impose all kinds of structure around this in all kinds of industries. And we're seeing it in academia and, you know, like all over the place. And I think it's way too early. I both understand that impulse and think we don't know nearly enough about where this is going to go or how it's going to be used to to make useful long-term structures. Right now, what we're doing with most of those structures is making ourselves feel better, mm-hmm. like in terms of real applications. I think what we might see this do in books is like, in that summary kind of space, businesses like Blinkist, I would think, should be pretty yes. worried. Yeah. Like, if you have built your business model on, we will give you a 15-minute summary of Atomic Habits so that you don't have to read it yourself. You should be pretty concerned <laughs> when mm-hmm. ChatGPT can do that for somebody. Or like, yesterday, I got served an ad for, I think it was a Blinkist product that was like a Brene Brown deep dive. And it was like, here's your pack of eight. And I was like, first of all, you don't know me. Yes. 
And got that wrong. <laughs> you got that one wrong. I'm going to read all of those. Uh, but also like chat GPT could have answered that question for me. I put uh, our company fave radical candor through it recently and said like you know chat gpt give me like key points about feedback communication from kim scott's radical candor because it's all over the internet i thought it would be mm-hmm. you know a, a thing that chat gpt would have had plenty material to teach and feed itself on and it was pretty darn good so in terms of the nonfiction summary stuff i do think that creates like a type of competition and maybe some push towards innovation for folks that are doing the original creating themselves it'll be really interesting to see what people try to do with it with fiction i don't think that's going to be very successful yet and and really it's I think in the immediate, probably going to come down to like online retailers, especially Amazon, trying to do a better job weeding out that stuff that is a summary of where the crawdads sing instead of where the crawdads sing that fools readers who think that they're getting the whole book. There's probably a little bit more of that to handle. Um, But it's also still it's it's young and buggy. And, you know, like I watched a demo yesterday of a guy teaching chat GPT that two plus two equals five (laughs) and he succeeds in doing it. Yeah, it's funny. So. It is funny that it is the the results can be pretty wildly awesome and terrible at this. I mean, mm-hmm. you can you know depending on what you do. My daughter and I were messing around with it because I was talking to her about it, and in a beginner's mind way, it's it's a really fun, it's kind of a fun exercise. Like yeah. it's kind of a fun word game to play with ChatGPT. So we did something like I think we said write um, a poem about five chickens in the style of Dr. Seuss, and here are their names mm-hmm. and. It was bad, but it did it, and it was in 30 <laughs> seconds, and it was fast. Um, write the first two paragraphs of a murder mystery novel with the main character, Turds McGee. We are nine. Great. And, 10, Love and 11 it. in my house. And I am me, so <laughs> there's not a lot of uh, guardrails on the silliness, I would say. And it wrote two paragraphs of very bad, well, it's not bad in terms of like a bunch of racism racism and grammatical errors, right? I guess that's the kind of the worst version of bad. But it was just so generic. It's like, yeah, I could have done that. It would have taken me just longer to write the words with my meat fingers. But right. it's nothing even close to something bordering on interesting. Like, you'd have to do much so much. You'd have to do enough prompt engineering. This is the new, t- um, basically, the um, the job title I've been seeing around, prompt mm-hmm. engineer, which tells you that you need to learn how to use the tool. And right now... Being a sufficiently good prompt engineer to get anything close to interesting prose from the prose point of view, not from just the informational dump point of view, but from right. like a prose thinking point of view, you might as well just write it, honestly. Yeah, I think yeah. my experiences trying to put silly and creative stuff through it have been right. exactly the same there. If anything, it reinforces that at least where we are right now in March of 2023, Art and craft come from something human and intangible. And that may shift. It may change. It may evolve as as these tools get better. But there is still something very special and unique that a tool like this can't provide. And I think that's contributing to my like, all right, everybody, like, let's slow down on trying to put the policies around all the Mm -hmm. things so far. Like, why are we so scared of this thing when all of the current samples are showing us, hey, the thing that humans can do is still the thing that only humans can do? Yeah. Well, and I, I think 
we both know the reasons, and sometimes things do go exponential in hockey stick and mm-hmm. change the world. It's, it's sure it's few. The other thing that's here is wrapped up in human identity and philosophy and theories of mind, and so this is a big one, right? This is not Google, mm-hmm. right? Google was. Yeah. I was telling my lot. mom that I think it's probably the most interesting technology I've seen in my lifetime since you know the good search engines. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. I think yeah, I think yeah, that could right. be that. And search has changed the world, but it also sort of hasn't, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it can do a lot of the stuff that was looking up stuff in the yellow pages or needing an encyclopedia or using maps. And like, that's really interesting. I don't think search created, search didn't result in a bunch of new creativity. What search has done is people gaming algorithms to capture interests so you can serve them ads. And sometimes it's really amazing. Like Wikipedia is one of the great, things that has happened in my life by itself that's very search dependent but some of it is like i want to get in the way of the thing you're finding so Mm -hmm. i can put ads in front of you and affiliate links and all that kind of stuff (laughs) right and it's i don't know i don't know that search is like what what did search produce that's so great besides you know really creative point of view (laughs) really long prose introductions to recipes on the internet that is a step backward rebecca shinsky that is a step backward it is that is yeah that is 100 percent a step backward and it's one of those things where like as search evolves the things that we have to create to game search also evolve so like the way that folks would title blog posts 10 years ago Mm -hmm. is really different from the way that we title them now the fact that you've got to like if you're a cooking blogger you've got to put a super long introduction on your post because seo wants that right now seo is going to want something different and i think it's reasonable and wise to expect that this type of technology is going to evolve in a similar if not same way what these robots do for us might stay about the same in the way that what search has done for us has stayed about the same but the way they do it or like what they're looking for what you have to put into it to get what you want might shift or the ways that people people will find ways to to game it and i think really the question that i'm seeing from businesses is like how do i get chat gpt to recommend my ex whatever it is you know like when it when it first came out i was running through some of the prompts for articles that we've had you know real people write for book riot Mm -hmm. and i had chat gpt write me a list of 17 books like gone girl and the titles were pretty good selections. The internet is filled with read-alikes for Gone Girl, so it's not hard to find. The prose itself, yeah, kind of okay. But if I'm the person writing the next Gone Girl read-alike or the publisher, I'm thinking about how do I get ChatGPT to to do that? If if in fact these AI bots become our replacement for search. And I think that's really the thing to have the eye on right yeah. now, at least, rather than what is this going to do to our art? It's like, mm-hmm. it, it might do something. I'm not saying it won't or that it couldn't, but right now I don't see any indication that we need to be worried about art here. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I'm, I know that people, and there's a really great book that stuck with me since grad school, Walter Ong's Orality and Illiteracy. It's about Mm. the transition from an oral culture to one of written language and all the attendant steps that come along with it. And any new development comes along with some panic, whether it's writing, right, the glyph Mm -hmm. itself, whether it's um, printing, whether it's uh, offset type, whether it's an e-book, whether it's an audio book. And their disruption can happen along the way. There's not a lot of um, hand 
I don't even know what you would call them, but like the people that would put in by hand each individual letter into the press and then swap oh, right, it out right. for a new page. Mm-hmm. Those, that job is done. I mean, there are still people that make book and printing, but computing is done a lot in automation and everything else, you know, and those people disrupt, disrupted the scribes before them. And the scribes disrupted the oral stel- storytellers. There's, the one that stuck with me is um, when people first started sending messages that could be written down. So mm-hmm. the very the very sort of dumbed down version is like, this king wants to communicate with this other thing. And rather than going and parlaying face to face or sending the king's official herald with the official sign and everything, um, sent a letter, right? Well, how do you know the king wrote that? Yeah. Right? Is it that different? No, there's that there's that other piece of it, it too, or and but sometimes it really is that different. And I think that uncertainty is hard to live with because it could not be it different, is. and it could be real different. I mean, that's always a possibility. It's always a possibility. Yeah, this has been making me want an additional chapter to Clive Thompson's Smarter Than You Think, which right. does a lot of the same work of the book that you were just talking about. Mm. Of like, listen, when telephones were invented, we were sure that that was going to ruin social life. And then TVs came around and we were sure that that was going to ruin things. And then when books went from being just printed codexes to being ebooks, we were sure that that was going to change yeah. everything. And it's not that it's impossible that something will come along and completely overturn the old technology and the status quo in a way that's negative. It's just very rare that that's it's the way it goes. Rare. The change happens, the shift happens, but these like fundamental parts of human society and human need, including communicating with each other and creating things are fundamental and really hard to overturn. So we get new tools, we get new ways of messing around with them, but it's really, really rare that something is just earth shattering. And I don't don't know, I guess I'm okay with the uncertainty. Like it's new technology. We've been doing this a long time. We've seen a lot of new technology. This is meaningfully different and it could be much more disruptive than other things we've seen, but it also might not be, we don't know yet. Like, I'd like us to, to take a collective breath maybe around it and just let it be interesting and wonder about it a little more rather than trying to like put stakes in the ground when we don't have ground really to stand on with this yet. I think we're still very much on shifting sands. Yeah. And and it's the familiar intellectual battle lines being drawn between sort of the naked futurists who assume everything is good and there aren't mm-hmm. any constraints right. at all. No, just not right. that they shouldn't be, but there won't yeah, be, that the right. thing could do infinite work in infinite variety of ways. Um, and then the, you know, the more conservative, um, sometimes it's political, sometimes not point of view, which is, I don't want that. That's bad. And mm-hmm. only bad things can can come from it. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm either of those places right now. Let's say, I'd, I I guess maybe as a thought experiment um, to say, I'd messed around with chat GPT enough, say, over the last couple months and say, actually, it's pumping out something pretty close to a George Saunders short story. I'm just trying to think of the the thing that's least mm-hmm, likely to mm-hmm. be disrupted by this. Right. <laughs> Would I feel better or worse? I mm-hmm. guess I don't know the answer to that. Because if, if that's the case, then basically there could be infinite George Saunders-like, or and I'm not even saying mimicking it, but like gives me the feeling, the reading feeling I get when I read the someone feeling, like George Saunders, right. right? Of that creativity, insight, strangeness, you know, what you want or what I want from the highest level of reading for me. Say I could get that infinitely, that it wouldn't run out. That's essentially what we're talking about. Forget about the business Mm -hmm. side. I'm not Mm -hmm. a writer. I'm not an author. 
I don't know if this would change our business, Rebecca. Would people be advertising more or less? I don't really know. So put that aside. But as a reader, I guess the core question for me has been, and this comes down to whether or not SNS should be acquired by PRH or what about audiobooks or what, <laughs> right, is right. are there enough of the kind of books I like? That from a reader, that's my point of view. And I guess in my heart of hearts, would I care that much if I had infinite choice? I, I don't know. I, I, it, what it calls into question, then do I have much care that story is written by George Saunders, that I know mm-hmm. the person that came up with it? And that's undiscovered country. Like, I don't know how I'm going to feel if, if someday right. it's like it just got spat out by a large language or, model. Maybe I would ascribe the genius to the person who put together that algorithm. That's possible. Certainly possible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, yeah, I, I think know. it's a really interesting question because so far we have not really succeeded <laughs> as a, a species in separating the art from the artist in right. any kind of meaningful way because you have to have the artist to get the art. But as you were talking, I was thinking about like, what if some future version of a bot like this could create music? Like if, if, if they're pumping out songs that make me feel the way that that first Counting Crows album makes right. me feel that transcendent thing you're looking for from art. If I can get that feeling and that's the like piece of my humanity that's lit up by it in the same way that like you get something, our humanity comes online in a special way when you read like a, a George Saunders story or a great work of literature, whatever that is to you, we've never really had the option. We haven't had the option of experiencing yeah. that as a product of anything other than another human. And does the experience feel different if it's a product of something else i don't know should it feel different i don't know there's like there's ethical questions Mm -hmm. and i think there will be there's even a question about whether there should be ethical questions does art need to be made by humans would we have an obligation in some ethical models to support art made by humans rather than art made by ai Mm -hmm. i I can imagine what those arguments would look like in a lot of ways i'm very tired of them already i can tell you and i'm very i don't like same same i'm not really interested Mm -hmm. in those and maybe there's a more interesting version of them to have when it's not all theoretical, you know, like there's not a good enough version of this yet to even have that conversation. It's all just hypothetical about what if somebody did this and then we had to do all these other things. And as you like to say, like that's several ifs down the road mm-hmm. and trying to be several ifs down the road is just generally a crazy making place. Like yeah. you, no wonder everyone's trying to write policies for stuff. Cause if what you're doing is sitting around playing the what if game just infinitely, the what ifs can become very, very overwhelming, but the reality of what we have here so far yeah. is something that can do something really interesting. If you're Google, you should be real worried about how mm-hmm. this disrupts you. If you have a like a, a blinkist kind of business, I think you have some valid concerns. But if you're in the art creation business, I think right now you're okay. And holding the question, holding the uncertainty, I think is the wise approach here, or at least trying to like right size our response to how this might be scary inside of what we do know and and just acknowledging that there's a whole lot of unknowns. And I think unknown unknowns, we don't even really know all the questions that we'll need to ask if, and that's a really big if, the technology ever becomes capable of creating something that even approximates human art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the different and I get it. Like there is a version in which you do a compounding interest of ifs into the future, mm-hmm. right? Where <laughs> yes, it's wildly the the future is wildly different than it is right mm-hmm. now. 
what are you going to do about that right now remains to me. Let's say that's true. Let's say there's a, there's a non-zero probability of it being wildly different. Can you legis- I just don't think you're going to legislate away this sort of technology and tool. We haven't seen that be effective. Like what, what technology no. have we come up with? Like actually you're not going to use that. We're just going to, through law, here's something that could be transformatively useful in a lot of ways, but it has some downsides we don't like. I mean, we have nuclear energy. Okay, you can't do nuclear weapons. Well, that's some, to some degree, that's, a, that's an infrastructure problem, right? This isn't mm-hmm. that. This is computing power. And computing power over right. time gets cheaper and smaller and by its definition, ergo, less legislatable. Right. Software is very hard to legislate, uh, as we learned in college, right? Through Napster and other kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so and it's out it's, of the box. Like it's You can't put it back in there. This is yeah. in the world now. Yeah. And, and the question really is, does it have enough room to run to get really good? Is, you hear what I'm saying? To, does it, mm-hmm. are, we closer to the, are we really close to the beginning of what a text AI can do? Are we in the middle or are we towards the end? Because if we're at 0.0001%, well, that's something. If we're already at 40%, that's a different story. It's just a completely, yeah. completely yeah. different story. Um, I think from a legal point of view, I'm gonna ch- we're going to do some more listener feedback in, the, in a minute. I think the law is going to be... Now, the law is something that can change, not to say that thing can or can't exist. I don't think that's possible. But how your own product can be used how copyright can work, how royalties mm-hmm. might work, because these large language models rely upon giant data sets, mind-boggling internet-scale data sets, right? <laughs> yeah, kind of unfathomable. Unf- it, it almost is, I mean, it, and that's not hyperbole. Like, the, the amount no, of text no. out there is, I think it's it's approaching sort of like universe scale, um, the number of, of text characters are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but is all that fair game for a large language model? You know, can it basically... Ch- you write a large language model, you enter, say, go take the internet or all the books that Google has searched benignly. They told us benignly, right? They've been doing all that book scanning. <laughs> I'm sure none of this has anything to do with it. It's all Mm-mm. fine. Um, can you do that? If I'm the writer of, a, say, uh, the, um, I don't know, maybe I'm the APA in the, what's the, the diagnostic manual, DSM-9 or whatever. Oh, the DSM, now. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a hugely expensive work to write. Right and should be expensive and should you know people should have to pay mm-hmm. for that right? Is it okay for OpenAI to just scan that and make that available? It's one thing because that's not plagiarism, right, Rebecca? Because you or I, if we right. read the DSM nine, and then someone asked a question about us, we could charge them to regurgitate the answer. We can't we sell could. them a copy of the DSM nine, but we could read it. And if we had a photographic memory or just really good or had a really good set of note cards, that knowledge is ours to use. Mm-hmm. So it's this weird middle ground, right? Because if it can read and retain and scan and parse well enough to give someone an answer, but doesn't actually recreate the text, what's the deal? And so the Authors Guild has started putting in and is recommending people put mm-hmm. into their book contracts that... My this text cannot go into a large language model from the from the publisher's point of view, nor their partners. And citing examples where, you know, stuff is getting fed into the we talked about this show Apple's um, efforts yep. to do AI narration. Well, if you're going to do that, the text is in the system, right? The ghost is in the machine, or the machine has come for the ghost. So don't do that. 
because I don't want my text being part of the the Borg that's going to shoot out new things. I think any individual author probably is not going to matter that much, but it does make me wonder, say, on Book Riot tomorrow, if there was some bit of code we could put on that says, nope, if it's a large language model, come a knocking, don't answer the door. And by the way, we need to see if you've slurped up all of our stuff, and if you have, you need to exp- expurgate it. Like, is that something that's going to be enforceable in the future? It, it mm-hmm. reminds me of image copyright in the wild and woolly early days of social media. <laughs> uh-huh. It's very similar to me, right? So mm-hmm. I think this is the kind of thing where we might be able to put some protections for the people who make stuff out there. I'm, I'd have to tell you, I'm not optimistic that's going to matter that much. I just am. I'm just not. So. I, I would agree with that. And I think it's just not the question I'm most interested in. Like, as we right. think about how technology has shifted in the last 10, 15 years, really what the internet has done, the biggest concern I have about society inside that is that not just the law, but the way that we teach people about how to understand technology and media and what comes right. out of the internet is really lagging. And I think that teachers and educators have, re- have caught up to this. You know, my mm-hmm. friends who are librarians are doing the Lord's work out there, teaching children to question the things that they learn on Google and TikTok. And it, it, when we start having more access to AI models where you could ask it a question about just about anything, you you could ask it about a health concern you have right. or the symptoms of whatever, or I have these symptoms, what might this illness be? And all sorts of other things. Educated skepticism and understanding how like, how to have that educated skepticism, the critical thinking around the output from this stuff, literacy around how to use these tools, what mm-hmm. they're good for, what they're not good for, and the secondary layer of interpreting what this tool gives you rather than just taking it and assuming that it is correct or helpful. How do we work as a society with the acceptance of this is a thing and it's going to be a thing and it's going to grow in ways that we can't anticipate? How can we do a better job this time around about teaching ourselves and teaching younger people the ways to use it and the ways to have a healthy relationship to it? Like in outside of how do we protect like what happens to authors or what happens to people who create Mm -hmm. things, which is a question worth asking But on the bigger level, like. Once a cat like this is out of its bag, I kind of I want us to more immediately move into how do we use this responsibly and how do we teach people to understand and use it responsibly rather than the just immediate response of resistance to the things Mm -hmm. existing because it does exist. So what are we going to do now? And there's an element, too, that it even seems more like magic than the internet itself or search because, you know, some of those key internet literacy tools are, you know, what's the website? Do you trust the website? Mm-hmm. Is the author mm-hmm. source? You know, does it seem like a real person? Does it seem like motivated reasoning? Can, can you right. then go Google, are jackalopes real, right? Or, or you know, <laughs> right. something like that. It's like, you ask, what is a jackalope? And it says, well, it's this rabbit deer hybrid thing. And they're like, okay, you do some media literature on that. And you say, okay, I don't trust this website. And there's a bunch of other sources saying X. You ask, what is a jackalope to chat GPT? It may give you one answer, but we're already seeing people tweaking those models, right? 
Mm-hmm. So, and you can't check the source. You have no idea. And neither do the people that make these things because they are so mind boggling complicated. You can't get under the hood to any particular question and say, where did that one come from? Right. Because it's, that's what AI is. Like, it's not just an index <laughs> with a bunch of sources. Right. It's fed on the universe size of data yes. that's out there now. <laughs> and it relies upon it's- the universe sort of being true. It's kind of the ultimate, like, crowdsourced thing. It, it, when you think about it that way, it's actually crowdsourced language. If that makes, mm-hmm. it, I don't know if that helps anybody to understand what's happening here. It's not an AI. It's not an intelligence right now. It's really, really, really sophisticated algorithms that basically looks at everything that's ever been said on the internet. Essentially, essentially, this is very yeah. boiling it down and parsing that in a way to make a guess. Frankly. Um, and and, has, and when it gets it wrong, it can get wildly wrong. Like yes, really, really yeah. wrong. I think that's also part of why at present I'm not worried about what this is doing to art or what it might do to art because so much of written art of literature is in the subtlety mm. and the unsaid and these yeah. AI models are very literal and very concrete. Yes. Like you can teach one that two plus two equals five. If you tell it, no, next time I ask you what is two plus two equal, you will tell me five. <laughs> you know, right. it's there. It's that concrete. And when a, we'll stick with George Saunders, when somebody mm. is writing a piece like that, writing a story like that, it's like really about the question of, what does it mean to be human? What is empathy? The answers to those questions are not written as empathy is blah, blah, blah. Humanity is about blah, blah, blah. Like that's what a chatbot will give you right now. What you get from the George Saunders interpretation of it is a story that evokes those ideas and makes you think about it, but ne- never says, hey, now here is a story about empathy. <laughs> now here is a story about man's relationship to art. And you know, it could I guess it's possible cuz anything is with technology mm-hmm. that it could get that good to do subtlety, to do the unsaid thing that exists between the words, but right now it is just the words. And that yeah. it's a long way to go. It's a big gap to hop over. Yeah, so I mean, it's not something we're going to keep our Again, if there's a really interesting new development, and I think for me that development would have to be, this is a thing created by a thing in a fairly straightforward way that is going to open your eyes. I I, I can't mm-hmm. imagine what I'm going to be super interested between here and there. Uh, that's yeah, just me. same. Um, all right, let's do another sponsor. We'll get into some other stories. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be. Right? Right, girl. Like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. 
Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Um, had a, some more listener feedback. Uh, an employee, uh, I think a current employee at Indigo, uh, the ca- mm. little Canadian bookstore, having a bit of a tech problem of their own. Um, oh dear. Ran- well, ransomware, right? Uh, they're still. Being oh right, ransomware. that one. Okay, I didn't yeah. know if you were talking about a new one. Okay. No, no. Um, apparently, they have a Shopify instance up now. Indigo <laughs> to try to oh, my sell gosh. some books. <laughs> Um, but they, this person sent me a picture of the cash line at an indigo of late and it looked like New Year's <laughs> Eve, um, oh before a snow tarm, before a snowstorm and the apocalypse, like people buying books, which is fascinating. But also their loyalty program. We asked a couple weeks ago, or Vanessa, we're talking about Barnes and Noble's new loyalty mm-hmm. program. And this person is saying that indigo's loyalty program is very, very popular, um, and people use it a lot, especially, I guess, people come and buy a huge stack of manga and get 10% off and save themselves like 100, 200 bucks at a time, which is great. And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the muckety mucks at Indigo have a sense that these people wouldn't buy their books with us if we didn't have mm. this versus, you know, a membership. The membership program is a little tough. Are you just giving your most loyal customers free crap that they would have spent that money anyway? Or you're getting marginal dollars you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And I'm not sure that the the literature on this is pretty is very good, right? No. It's like frequent flyer programs. If every airline <laughs> has a frequent flyer program, then that becomes just sort of table stakes, right? That you have to have one. It doesn't become a differentiator. I guess like you have to have seats, but it doesn't actually help any individual business make more people fly. If anything, you know, they do different things. So I think it's 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 an open question. Maybe on balance, if you can make it a little easier for you to buy one place versus another one. I was telling Vanessa Rebecca that my mm-hmm. first loyalty thing of any kind was for the Raven, and it was a oh, physical punch yeah. card. Yep. And if you spend seventy five bucks, you got ten bucks off your next purchase. So a de facto twelve and a half ish percent. And I think I think that kind of I like that. I don't know that I would have spent mm-hmm. my money differently, especially in the pre Amazon days. Um, but I'd have to admit every time I go into Powell's and I was just there yesterday to buy something and I'm paying full freight, $32 for a hardback yesterday. Mm. Um, Spicy. I was like, would I feel a little bit better about this if I got 10% off with my free membership card? And the answer to that Rebecca Shinsky is yes, I would. I, so I don't know what to mm-hmm. tell you. Maybe, maybe that wouldn't th- th- every now and again, when I buy from a discount or online, maybe I do that a little bit less. I'm not sure, but um, keep those stories coming, folks out there. Do you? Mm, it's interesting. Do you, do you have a? You do have a Barnes and Noble card. You don't. You don't. You know. No. Independent bookstores sometimes have these, but I think most don't. We got some emails back, and my local indie doesn't. My local indie doesn't. So it feels like most independent bookstores don't have a membership yeah. or a loyalty program. I do some shopping 
remotely through our friend friend of the show josh christie's uh bookstore in portland maine print and they do have a loyalty program i could not tell you the particulars of it but i put my phone number in anytime i order a book from them online and every now and then when i've spent enough money it's like hey guess what you get a discount on this thing because you racked up enough points or enough dollars and it does feel nice for me personally it doesn't go into the hopper when i'm making a decision about am i buying my book there or am i going to go down to barnes and noble and pick it up or is this something i'm going to read digitally but it does it does feel nice especially because when i'm when i'm doing indie bookstore orders that's particularly when i'm ordering hard covers of like debut right. authors that i really want to support it does it makes a nice feeling difference i don't know that it's much more than feelings you know like mm. i'm looking at the new rebecca mckay sitting on my desk that was 28 dollars in hardcover does the 280 i would have saved really matter no, no. but the feeling does yeah <laughs> so. the feeling does the feeling does so Anyway, um, so that the bit about the Authors Guild, that was in Publishers Lunch. I can't really cite. I would give you the link, and it won't be in the show notes. But subscribe to Publishers Lunch if you're interested that kind of thing. Um, this is also not something I can link to. It was in um, – it's a email newsletter as opposed to a print newsletter. I guess you say newsletter at this point. <laughs> um, that The Verge does called Hot Pod. It's about podcasting um, that, I, mm-hmm. that I read. And I think we've pulled some stuff from it before. Yeah. But apparently they it's had their one. recent summer, summit – their podcasting summit and they had folks from Spotify and PRH audio and other places talking about audiobooks and Spotify. And this is not the title Rebecca of the piece. It was my slug. <laughs> no. Um, and it says my slug, my chat GP, Jeff GPT version was audiobooks <laughs> and Spotify sound like a nothing burger. And mm-hmm. there's a, they had a panel and talk and it's interesting and it sounds like a lot of nothing. And it's just as we suspected Publishers are not interested in putting anything close to front list on anything other than a paper download model, a paper buy model. Yeah. We don't want ad supported. We don't want pennies per minute listened for you or whatever. They have no magic here. Spotify has no secret deal to fight inflation, to quote the West Wing, about how to make the audiobooks um, basically a la carte or subscriptions so you're buying credits. So it's a la carte, even though it doesn't feel that way. They, there's nothing here, Rebecca. Is there? Did I miss something? I, I dropped this in kind of late, so I'm nope. not sure if you had a chance to go yeah, through no, these the, few paragraphs. But. There's nothing here. It feels really analogous to what we were going through about five, six, seven years ago with the desperate search for an all-you-can-eat ebook model that was right. subscription-based, and publishers showed us then that they weren't really interested. They want mm. you paying, you know, per book for your front list, um, and it makes sense that that's what we're going to see with audiobooks. Yep. So, well. yeah, if you're interested in podcasting, I would I would um, check out that newsletter. Yeah, it's, it's a good newsletter. I give for you. But, like, maybe we could give you um, something. And, yeah, yeah, maybe you could. And there could be. It was just <laughs> nothing. I was, re- I was really struggling to find um, something interesting there. So I think I'm also going to shelve that as a – until – I can get the new, I don't know. Well, we didn't talk. This could be a news post. The new Zadie Smith novel coming out in the fall, oh. Rebecca. Historical fiction from Zadie Smith. Until I can get that on Spotify, or, or I see that that's other than fourteen ninety nine for a right. subscription credit or twenty four ninety nine for full price. Until the business model is something other than that, I'm checked out on audiobooks and Same. streaming. I am. I'm done. Me too. Yeah, yeah I want to, we got to see some kind of disruption there for it to be worth exploring again. Mm-hmm. 
for sure. Uh, and right now our listeners can just put a little red circle around September 5th on your calendar because not only that'll be Labor Day here in the U.S., but that's Zadie Smith Day now, my friends. Yeah, we're already talking about our fall, our fall draft. We <laughs> skipped right over summer drafts. Which we're gonna, the fall draft is going to be a bloodbath. Really, it really is. I haven't looked to see how the dates line yeah. up, but we know we're getting Zadie, we're getting Colson Whitehead, we're getting Lauren Graf. There, the announcements are just going to keep on coming. If they all came out on the same day, I think I might just leave my body. Like I'm supposed to be on a plane going to another country on September 5th, and I was mm. like. I guess I'm just going to read Zadie Smith on that plane, but I kind of want to reschedule my whole trip so I can just sit somewhere with Zadie Smith instead. Just, just sit in, maybe you'll get a nice long delay, you know, one of those. (laughs) There you go. Uh, This is also some follow up, follow up, follow on about, I don't know what we're calling this. You have James Bond books being updated without racist language. Mm -hmm. Vanessa and I talked about these Royal Doll books updated, amended. Some people are using the word censored. I'm not using that word because that's not censorship. It's when you right. when you are the copyright owner and you change a word, <laughs> that's like maybe the actual opposite of censorship. I don't know what to say. Edited. Yeah. yeah. Edited. Edited, changed. I guess just changed. These are just, just changed yeah, just, versions. These are value neutral things that are happening right. here. They are changing. Yeah. The James Bond estate um, is doing something basically similar. We talked about the doll. Uh, there mm-hmm. is more overt well, there is overt racial epithets in some of in of the early James Bond books, especially. A little bit different here for this reason, I think. Apparently, um, I'm not sure if it's linked in this piece here that I pulled, but one of the pieces I was reading about, uh, and I knew this because I did a read all the James Bond mm-hmm. novels one summer and did a post for the site, and I, I did some reading about Fleming, and as he he did some updating himself about some of the language he was using, and I don't remember if it's like the narrator's voice or character's voices that said these particular words. And I think that matters because these are words Mm -hmm. that are used by people and especially were used in these kinds of contexts in other places. It doesn't mean it's fun. It doesn't mean I want to buy a book that has it in there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Fleming himself was especially racist or racist. It means there are racist people. And when you're writing about people that can happen, you know, Okay, I guess maybe I'm coming around to you're the copyright holder, you get to do what you want. I think the historian is in me still wants there to be versions that have the original because that matters. Like what it was changed from matters. Um, and I do think it's different if it's the author that's still alive versus the estate that's doing it so they can continue selling books. Um, I don't want the original versions erased, and libraries yeah. have them, and I hope those are preserved because I think that's important. From for a new reader's perspective that just wants to have a good time reading about you know child spies or you know beaten Russians and stuff, I don't think it matters to their experience that much. If it changed, I think great, it probably it's better. Take out some of the epithets, um, make it less vile. You know, make those moments less vile, mm-hmm. and we can get on with our lives. I guess, like Vanessa said, I'm more interested in what else is there of the new that can be read. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know, and then the other one is Raul Dahl's yeah, estate. You can also buy the cla- you can buy Coke Classic too. So they're gonna have they're right. gonna have the racist ones and the fat phobic <laughs> ones, and they're gonna have the other ones. They should make the racist and fat phobic ones a little more expensive, so you have to pay the tax if you yeah, want that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I I think I'm in a pretty similar place to where 
you are with these. I, I think this is good progress to keep stories and characters that, you know, are meaningful, that readers have loved. Like James Bond is James Bond. <laughs> like yeah. there's something really special about that, but we don't need to keep painful language that's harmful to people in these books. Mm-hmm. If it can be updated and we're not meaningfully changing anything else about the experience, I think that's a very human, smart thing. To do, I like the idea of the future I've been dreaming of here. The future liberals want <laughs> is mm-hmm. something like the new James Bond comes out, and it, there are little asterisks with footnotes or references in the back of the book, where if you want, you can see what the original language was. And over time, like I imagine, what what's acceptable to us now is not going to be what's acceptable to us in fifty years. And if James Bond is still with us in fifty right. years, over time you accumulate a record of how that language has shifted. And that could be really interesting and educational in itself. Like everybody's favorite to kill a mockingbird is a candidate that's ripe for some kind yeah. of reexamination like this. And if you built into this process keeping in the same book like in the same physical object or the same ebook, a record of here's what the original yep. was so yeah. that that can be. So it's a reference, you know, if here's mm. here are the changes we made. Here's what the original was. If there's a note from the author or a note from the editor, whoever holds the copyright, I think that would be great as well. I'd like to see. I think this is something that's going to be with us. Like there's a place where if you want to continue selling James Bond books, if you want to continue selling Roald Dahl mm-hmm. books, the smart thing to do is take the offensive language out of them yeah. so that readers will still be comfortable and interested in engaging with your story. But let's do that in a way that lets us keep an eye on where we were and where we have moved to and where we where else we might be going in terms of language. I'd like I want to preserve that path. I think, as much as preserving the originals for for the reference. It is so strange because if Raoul Dahl or Ian Fleming were alive and they did this themselves, I'd feel completely different about it. Because like, just because I hit publish on that day and that represented the best of my understanding on that day, doesn't mean I have to be held hostage to that forever if I learn something different. But it matters to me that these people are dead. Because these Mm. people that are changing them hold the copyright they may or may not have any interest in preserving or whatever the literary legacy. They, they're not the author. That's the thing. They're not the author. And on the book, it's still going to say Matilda by Roald Dahl. The, but this is not what he wrote, Rebecca. So like, yeah. there's a fundamental mistruth about what's going on there. I think that's a place... Attention must be paid. Attention must yeah, be paid that yeah. this is not the same thing. <laughs> I think that's this a is place not what where... it is. The asterisk and the footnote would also be useful or to say these changes were made by the copyright holder or the publisher or whatever Mm -hmm. at this time. Maybe this is something for the Authors Guild to look into. Do you need to start putting some notes into your contracts about after my death? If language evolves in a way that my text needs to be amended, here's what's cool and here's what's not, or here's how I'd like Mm -hmm. it to be noted or not noted. Like Language has shifted a whole lot just in the last... 10 years like I'm I die a little on the inside every time somebody tells us that they're like reading a book riot post or listening to a podcast episode from 10 years ago because we were different people and the culture was very different and what I and this is growth this is what we want but like that person 10 years ago with that set of understandings about the world was living in a very different world than we're living in today and if someone had been like hey 
you're going to need to update your priors or update stuff as a writer when you have that that book that's just out there and it's mm. we've we've thought of those things as permanent and i think that we are seeing that as language evolves as quickly as it does now that we're all so connected and we have the right. internet some consideration of the book is not so much a permanent object, but maybe this is kind of a living document. And as an author, what can be living and what cannot be? How can it evolve and how can it not? And how should those things be noted, both for the, just the importance of record and posterity, posterity, but also for the benefit of readers? It would be a really interesting question. I'd love to hear some people talk about. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think what's being troubled is that fixity of X book by mm-hmm. Y author. Right. It's, this is something other than that. And, you know, it goes, speaking, Ghost Head of Watchmen is a great example. Harper Lee didn't want to publish that book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't. Right. Uh, Ralph Ellison didn't want to and publish it. And you can see it why. <laughs> yeah. They didn't want to do it. And the estate is doing something different. And you can argue about whether that's good or should it just been a manuscript in a library, someone for scholars to do or whatever else it might be. But the fundamental truth is that when Raoul Dahl signed off or however it happens, that book came out when he wrote it, Matilda or these other ones, The Witches. That book is meaningfully different. And if it weren't meaningfully different, they wouldn't be doing it. If it didn't mean anything, right. they wouldn't be doing it. So by its nature, you mm-hmm. can't argue that it doesn't matter. Because if it didn't matter, they wouldn't do it. Um, so it's being changed in a material way. And some kind of acknowledgement, I think, is appropriate. And mm-hmm. we don't have too much language for that yet or, or how to do. Maybe an epilogue or some other notes to the reader. Yeah, something. Or, you know, a note on the type. You know, if we get more, if we get more information about the typography than the <laughs> racial epithets being changed, that's a problem. That's a problem. Yeah, I agree. All right, frontless foyer. What have you been reading? It's been a while since we've talked. I've got a billion things to talk about. I have no, I have no idea how to even start. I'm going to pick two things, but while I'm vamping, what have you? Been okay, reading? I read The Neighbor Favor by Christina Forrest, which mm. is a really sweet little rom com. I it wasn't on my radar at all. And then I saw a starred review of it in Publishers Weekly that was like, this has You've Got Mail vibes. And I was like, oh. click. Uh, it, it is. It's, it's about um, a young black couple in New York. Well, it starts with a young black woman. Uh, she works in publishing. She's like toiling away with a kind of Anna Wintour boss. So there's also like some Devil Wears Prada stuff happening. She's on the train one day and the train is stuck. She's like getting kind of woozy. And in her wooziness, she Googles the name of the author who wrote her favorite sci-fi book. or fa- It's a fantasy novel, um, which was like one of the first fantasy novels where she had ever seen black characters. And so really seeing herself in this she finds like oh my gosh he finally has a website and there's a way to email him and so she emails the author just to be like you changed my life i'm not the kind of person who just sends emails through the contact form on authors websites but i just want to say thank you for having written this sending it off into the void and then she kind of forgets that she's done it because she's having like a fever dream moment being stuck on this Mm -hmm. train in a heat wave but the author writes back And they start having this email exchange where they're eventually talking about their lives. He tells her, you know, after I wrote that, I was really young. I gave up on the idea of being an author. He's become a a travel journalist. And so he's writing her emails from all over the world. They have like little periods where it falls silent because he's gone somewhere dangerous. And they start to really connect with each other. And then he decides to just drop off. He tells her like, actually... 
I'm not who you think I am. I don't think this can go any further. And this is after they've kind of started like imagining what their first date together might be like. He just disappears. So she's really hurt. Things happen that lead them to accidentally, unknowingly end up in each other's proximity back in New York. (laughs) And yeah. And the story becomes about when will she find out that that's who that person is is he going to tell her what's going to happen after he tells her um on the like steaminess scale it's very low it's like pretty tame if you're looking for a not so spicy romance but it was really well written it was the rare book that is set largely inside publishing that i was like this is fun Uh, (laughs) like it wasn't because it's not about be a book lover here's my book about book lovers um she's just kind of toiling away and she has this connection he happens to be an author but it's just sort of secondary she just likes the, the thing that person has created like the you've got male vibes was it that was a really good comp it was really fun i enjoyed it like that it was just a fun read i was glad to see it um and then let's see i had a, a couple really good audiobook listens on my road trip last week so i'll just second your emotion for Fieldwork by iliana reagan yeah um really good man so good and you didn't tell me that like oh five minutes into this you're going to be googling the milkweed in in michigan's upper peninsula i i didn't <laughs> want to even look I and how to go stay there and how much it is and the reservations oh, yeah. are nine you don't want to know but the whole thing is really lovely i really liked her take and it's a different flavor of like a big city fancy chef goes back to the land Uh, so i just i really loved her voice not what i would have guessed was going to be her second memoir like coming out of i I agree burn the place it was was, really surprising surprising in a good way to me yeah yeah like you know like people do i liked it it's messy yeah and people do surprising things and i was surprised by her in in a really good way and then i also listened to becoming free indeed by gender duggar volo who uh, was one is one of the duggar daughters from the yes mm -hmm, from the like i think the most recent version was the 19 kids and counting show on tlc yes the family has many children so she grew up in a um sect of really conservative fundamental evangelical christianity and she has separated herself from the faith that she grew up in but she is still a practicing christian and the frame i was just fascinated by her story because it's not a tell-all and she tells you from the very beginning like this is not going to be a juicy tell-all she doesn't spend 300 pages dunking on her family but i was like what is it like like this is functionally a getting out of a cult memoir Mm. and at the very end of the book she basically acknowledges that and i wanted to see what the journey was how did this person get out of this religious community that she was raised in she's coming from the perspective of having watched a lot of other people who grew up in that same community having done what she considers to be throw the baby out with the bathwater they have left their faiths entirely um, through a process that's become known i guess in that corner of evangelical christianity as deconstruction like i'm deconstructing my whole faith no more religion of any kind for me. And she didn't have the desire to do that. She sort of shifted into what's like more of a like mainstream non-denominational Christianity. So she talks about disentangling and the Mm. phrase that she uses quite a bit was disentangling truth from error, disentangling the truth that was inside the teachings I received from misinterpretation, from human beings 
you know, motivated reasoning, um, looking really honestly at the abuse that happens in those situations. The person who was like kind of the the founder of this group um, was later accused very credibly by a very large number of women of having been inappropriate with them sexually when they were underage. Um, And she just kind of, she goes right at it and lets the she just lets all of these moments and all of these actions and teachings really speak for themselves in a way that like, if you want to come down on a group like that or, uh, or, or get the tell all, it would be unsatisfying. Like she's not going to rail about like, and here are the 25 reasons why this is so bad, but she just does a lot of showing and the showing does all the work. Um, I was really impressed. Like I, I was telling a friend who also read it, I feel like she's had some really good therapy and done a lot of processing and you can Mm. see it here. And if the intended audience is who she's speaking to in the book of like, if you've grown up in a group like this, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can continue to have some kind of faith practice. I think she has succeeded in writing the book that she wanted to write. Like it's it's not where I have personally landed on ideas Mm. about that, that kind of faith, but she's like very successful in what she's done. And I was fascinated by like in like in any cult story, what starts putting cracks in the belief? Like what are the experiences and the moments that mm. just let enough light in that you start to question things and start to get out? And how does someone who's got 18 siblings, most of whom are still involved in this, get the guts to make that kind of move and what kind of information or or exposure to experience do you have to have that that motivates you to do that really difficult thing and step away from not just your your huge family but this community that's really been all she's ever known um so i was just i think it's important work that she's doing with that book i'm really glad that i spent six hours listening to it i think if you have any interest in like cult memoirs or understanding what's going on in a religious community like that why people are drawn to it and what gets them out of it um it's worth some worth some time cool um i'm yeah. going to do four things but i'm going to group them and i'm not going to go into excruciating or even okay. useful detail maybe about any of them uh let's start Great. with the you want the good news or the bad news first Rebecca? give me the bad news first so we can end on a high note <sighs> you're not going to like this from me i don't think so two <laughs> oh, things no. that i was disappointed by um enchantment by Catherine may and saving time by jenny odell oh I, no Look, some of it could be me, and this is why I'm going to couch it in this way, where I think I am no longer, if I ever was interested in the pandemic broke me and us, and Mm. now here is how to get in touch with X. Do you hear what I'm saying? Uh, I do. I, I just, maybe towards the end of it, and we did intimations with Zadie Smith, and we both really like that. I think that was so much more observational. Um, I don't know. I don't know that neither of them were bad. I was just expecting more. I really liked wintering. There's mm-hmm. something about this idea. I mean, basically it's like I'm broken. The pandemic broke us. Here's some ways to re-enchant the world. And I didn't find them particularly compelling. It didn't feel like self-explore, self-exploring enough to feel mm-hmm. like really wrestling with it in a way where Fieldwork really does wrestle with the mess. Right? It feels That's it true. feels a little bit too neat um, you know, in some ways. I'm going to interrupt you for just a second because I'm like a quarter of the way through oh, I'm Enchantment. Sorry. I, I didn't mean to spoil this for you. but No, 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 no. I'm like a quarter of the way in and that yeah. articulates something that I've been feeling in that first quarter. Like there are 
passages where Catherine may capture something like some something about like what the experience of feeling wonder is and she mm. does it in a in a, like yes you got that or there's like a great paragraph about how your mind gradually gets quieter when you're on a hike or mm. on a really long walk and i think she's wonderful at that but i've been having kind of the same feeling about it as i've gotten into it of like this book would have really helped me if somehow she could have time traveled and put it out in like the middle of 2021. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's something like that. And it doesn't, I think there are paragraphs of brightness, but as mm-hmm. a whole, and some of it can audio can do a weird thing where maybe it's broken up differently in print and it can, oh, ca- yeah. it can give it a different organization than we just hear the words sequentially without breaks that it really can't. Um, and then saving time, I guess I knew... I'm not like, wow, uh, clocks really screwed us up. I, 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 listen, I read A History of the World in 12 Clocks, Rebecca. Is, I know from time. Okay. Is that what saving time is about? Because really. my excitement about Jenny O'Dell is just like, yay, Jenny O'Dell, but maybe I've done myself dirty by not well, knowing give, more about no, it. Well, give yourself a chance, but like, you know, we've corporatized time and people have different relationships with time and maybe it's messed us up and it's it's good in its own way, but like, I feel like I've done this. I know mm. this. It didn't really speak mm-hmm. to me. Um, having read 4,000 weeks, I it's more academic than that. The bar but I was is like, high. I don't know. I, I didn't, I wasn't feeling I got, I didn't feel like I got that much. Time. It wasn't scholarly okay. enough to be a history and it wasn't sort of theoretically enough to, I don't know, screw with my ontology. Um and it wasn't like investigative enough to be like, if we did something different, it's like, well, we're not getting rid we're of it. We're not gonna. <laughs> so I don't know. There was just something about it that just didn't live up to what I was hoping for. Okay. That's fine. Interesting. I was looking forward yeah. to them both. You can't, you can't bet a thousand. Um, two things, new to me authors that I both really liked. All the Beauty in the World by Patrick Bringley. Have you heard of this book? Mm, no. So um, it's his debut book and it's a memoir. And basically what happened is he... Uh, was working for the New Yorker and the events division. You know, they have these big events. Mm-hmm. Living his life in New York, has a you know a girlfriend he likes, and his brother lives around, and kind of live in the post-humanities, uh, high-achieving humanities lifestyle. His brother gets sick and, and passes away from cancer. So, <sighs> secret cancer book. Not so secret. It's, mm-hmm. it's on the tin. Mm-hmm. And what he does, as you might imagine, this is not something easy to deal with. He seems especially close to his brother. He makes a, a career change and decides to become a security guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art to get in contact with beauty and slow down and really kind of take a step back and into his own life and be around art and really like this I thought this book was actually better about time than saving time by Jenny O'Dell frankly because when he's there he's just watching like he's on the clock right but like he doesn't have to be in a meeting there's no X number of units he has to perform. Mm-hmm. He's, He's just, just there to present. make sure things go well. And he gets a lot of time to look at art. And that's why he takes the job. Um, and so some of it is his memoir of what this is like. Like, what's it like to be a security guard? How does the museum work? Which you know I'm into shit like that, for mm-hmm. sure. But then also, he does like his own close readings of like art. It's like, this is what this meant to me when I was stationed in this section for six weeks. When Sold. I was here every day for six weeks. Um <laughs> I thought it was really great. I really liked it. It's not very long. Um, he doesn't pretend to be a scholar, though he's an, infor- he's an informed one. Um, and he's not saying everyone should become a security guard, and I won't spoil it, but that's not what he's saying at all. But it's like this particular experience, he, was done, he did it mindfully, and it felt like it was the right thing to do at this particular time. 
Um, I don't know. It was really good. I, I hope it sells and people like it and he has a career because it was really cool. I haven't read anything like this before. I- I think I've seen that slugged as like memoir by Metropolitan Museum of Art security guard, but I didn't have any of the information about like the bigger frame there. That sounds wonderful. Pretty interesting. And then on the fiction side, Age of Vice by Depti Kapoor. Um, I think it was one of the Jenna's picks or I don't know. Mm -hmm. It was one of those big commercial fic release from a PRH one. I think it's maybe double day. It doesn't matter. Knopf double day. One of those. Um, and it's a big sprawling novel about a crime family in Delhi, in India, and mm. people that get involved with it. It's I don't know anything about this world. I know very little about India, even though there's you know a billion people and more living there. Um, it's not not something I know a lot about, and I have no idea if this is accurate or not. But I thought the characters are compelling. It moved like a freight train, even though it was 550 pages long. Um, I found the world really interesting. The writing was very good. It kind of reminds me of like if Don Winslow wrote a novel about a gang in India. He writes about gangs in New York like every other year, and I read them all. But this was like, (laughs) oh, gang novel, crime, how the city is put together, investigative journalist, someone trying to get in, someone trying to get out, all the things that I like. Um, I thought it was really good, and I think it was her debut novel as well. Um, What I'm commercial fiction, like kind of genre y. I don't even know of a genre. I don't think it's more liter is upmarket genre. I don't even know. I'm kind of struggling a little bit because it is a it's a, it's crime because it's a crime family, but it's not about one particular crime. Um, I really thought it was great, and I was worried. The only reason I hadn't bought it earlier because I read a couple of good reviews that came out in January is that the dang thing is 520 pages, and I was like, oh god. So I was in Pals. I'm looking around. I was like, okay, I'm going to read 10 pages right here, and I got hooked. So I bought it, and I flew through it in two days. So that's the Age of Ice, actually. I think it might just be Age of Ice by Depti Kapoor. Those are my four picks. Two, two, two green arrows going up, two red arrows going down. All right. All I appreciate right. all of those arrows. And I yeah. have already purchased all okay, the beauty of the world. Yeah, there you can go. And you can find out what direction our arrow points for I Have Some Questions For You by Rebecca Mackay. I think so far the most talked about literary novel of the year or like commercial I think that's novel right. of the year. Yeah. Um, that's going to be the Patreon going up. Uh, well, if you're hearing this, it'll be up in a day or two, but we're going to record it and start in about 10 minutes and uh, talk through. I have some questions for you by Rebecca Mackay, an author we both really like, The Great Believers, I think was equivalently talked about when it came out um, mm-hmm. in 2018, unbelievably five years ago. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. No. <laughs> As always, you can find show notes at slash listen. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. And uh, we'll talk to you all very, very soon. Thanks so much, Rebecca.